Hello and welcome back to the Rising Edge DNO podcast. I am Richard Kutcher and as ever alongside me and navigating listeners through these episodes is Owen Dacey, Head of Claims at Rising Edge. Owen, how was your summer? Really good summer, thank you Richard. Um, very hot summer, slight downer, mm. whilst I didn't see you very much, takes a shine off it. How about yourself? Yeah, we didn't actually get to hang out too much. I think we both had quite a bit of holiday, but it's good to be back recording again, the pods. Yeah, very good summer. I got down to uh, Namibia, did a bit of safari down there, see some family, which was fantastic. And you've seen the pictures of those. But we're not quite ready, are we, to launch into season three fully of the pod. But we do have a special episode, this one, to release in the interim. We'll talk a bit about what's planned for Series 3 at the end, but Owen, who and what do we have lined up in store for listeners over the next 35 minutes? Well, Richard, we have, drumroll, Kevin LaCroix. And Kevin, as you might know, he's one of the most renowned and respected DNO insurance experts in the world. And of course, he's the author of, of probably the number one resource for all those who are interested in, in the world of DNO insurance. So every day on Labor Day in the US, Kevin uh, takes a step back and surveys what are the most important trends and developments in the world of DNO liability and insurance. And Kevin very kindly agreed to come on to our podcast and discuss some of those trends and developments with us. Not all of them, because that would probably be a whole um, podcast series. Yeah. So firstly, we're going to go in with macro factors. So for example, things like inflation, supply chain disruption, and how that is impacting the risk landscape for, for DNOs in the insurance market. Secondly, we're going to discuss ESG again, but here the focus is more around the challenges that exist with this concept. Uh, and finally, we're going to have a chat about the state of the DNO insurance market today, both in the US and in London. So we've also got, um, in addition to Kevin, we've got Philippe Garraud, the Chief Executive Officer of Rising Edge, providing his perspectives as someone running a, D- a specialist DNO underwriting agency in London. And also we have Yoel Brightman, who's the Managing Director. Of rising edge providing the the underwriting perspectives fantastic and it is a really good chat and outside of a, of a handful of brokers and underwriters kevin was actually one of the few dno experts i already did know of before embarking on this podcast with you owen because as you said he's extremely well known he's an extremely great resource for people interested in, in a dno topic so i've always kept a close eye on his on his blogs and his musings over the past few years and he really is a very well respected source of knowledge and i enjoyed listening to this conversation between the four of you so let's get into it then here is kevin Lacroix in conversation with owen philippe and yoel Okay, topic one, and it's a big one, macro factors, interest rates, inflation, labor shortages, supply chain disruption, and the war in Ukraine. Kevin, what, what's going on here? And why is this something to watch for the next 12 months when it comes to DNO risk and insurance? Well, obviously, stock prices are sensitive to the economic and business environment. And anything that depresses business activity is going to affect many companies. Now, a macro factor could affect every company on the stock market, but different companies are, are going to be affected differently. And in some cases, the impact that effect could be that the company share price declines and that it attracts a securities class action lawsuit. And that last point about the litigation risk has been substantiated by a number of lawsuits that have been filed in the last 12 months or so against U.S. listed companies 
Um, one example is the uh, consumer products company Tupperware. Tupperware was in the third year of a, a turnaround plan and during most of that time was announcing that they were on track to meet the goals of their turnaround plan. But then in the second quarter of 2022, they experienced downturn in a lot of their key indicators. And because this was inconsistent with uh, much of their prior disclosure, the ensuing stock price drop elicited a securities class action lawsuit against the company. I think it's meaningful for purposes of this discussion to look at what the company said were the reasons for its um, disappointing earnings announcement. And it cited several factors, including the impact in the war in Ukraine because uh, Russia was a substantial market for that company. Um, they also cited the um, inflationary cost of their supplies and difficulties passing those on costs on to consumers. So there's an illustration of a case that arose out of more than one of those um, economic factors that are operating on the business environment now. Another significant factor is supply chain disruption, which um, has a, a variety of different causes, and, and some of them have to do with the impact of the pandemic, but the supply chain disruption is continuing to affect companies. And um, that also can translate into securities class action litigation risk. And an example there is a company called Serence, which is parts manufacturer for the auto industry. And they were not directly impacted by the supply chain disruption, but what they found was demand for their products from the automobile industry was declining because the auto industry is suffering from semiconductor shortages that are interfering with their production. And so with the production disrupted, the demand for their product declined and they experienced a significant earnings miss, which attracted a securities class action lawsuit. So I guess what you would say is that the uh, macroeconomic factors have a significant impact on business operations and on financial results. And for that reason, also carry a uh, litigation risk that has, in fact, already uh, materialized in some securities class action lawsuits. And so with that, with that increased risk of litigation, are clients asking you questions now about these sorts of issues within the, within the context of their DNO insurance? Are these issues that are coming up in, in discussions with your clients now? So I do get a recurring series of questions because there's some confusion about how these kinds of market-wide factors can result in a lawsuit against one company. If it affects everybody, why is one company getting sued? And it's really not the fact that a company is being impacted. It's what the company says either about how these kind of factors would affect the company's uh, business operations and financial reporting, mm -hmm. or the company tries to uh, soft pedal the impact and it winds up being worse than the, the company originally portrayed. So it, it's not necessarily the direct impact of the macroeconomic factors. It's more what the company's disclosures say about how the economy is affecting its business and what the uh, magnitude of that impact is. Okay, and one, one further thought I had on the, these issues was whether with, with all these things coming together at one time and the, the pressure that puts on, on corporations, I was wondering if you might see a shift towards kind of more short-term thinking from companies. And I, I wondered if, you know, what risks does that kind of create for corporations? Is that something you thought about or have a view on? Well, the, the risk of short-termism is always there. And um, there's a lot of pressure on, on all public companies to show growth, uh, to meet their projections. And if, you know, inflation, um, rising interest rates are preventing them from doing that, if their debt costs are going up, that's going to affect their reported 
financial results and and you know a lot of company management are highly motivated to not disappoint the street so i you know i think there is some truth to the implication of your question that it could put pressure on companies to, to focus uh, more short term just, just to avoid that quarterly earnings miss I think the, the real danger is not just that it could force companies to short-term it, it's a, these factors collectively could push the economy into a recession. Rising interest rates raise the debt costs for companies. And during the low interest rate era, which prevailed over the last several years, a lot of companies loaded up on debt at a time when um, they may find that they're losing revenue because of supply chain disruption. Their borrowing costs are going up. And that could affect how the companies interact with the market and and with investors and could reinforce the companies scrambling to try and maintain stability at a time when their foundation is getting eroded. Philippe, as someone who's is running a, a specialist DNO underwriting agency, what are your what are your views on these macro factors Kevin's talking about and how it impacts on what you're doing at Rising Edge? What's well, quite unprecedented, uh, I think it's it's a number of, of factors that businesses have to, that are finding themselves confronted with, right? In terms of like, a, you did mention interest rate, inflation, uh, supply chain, uh, labor shortages, war in Ukraine. We can also add like foreign exchange, you know, particularly when you run a business that operates in multiple uh, currencies. And I think what this really brings to light, you know, is, and that goes back to the earlier question in terms of like, where is the exposure from, from a DNO standpoint? I, I think it really brings to light the need to really for business managers and the boards to really understand the dynamics of their business, you know, like in terms of their the cost base, uh, the nature of their revenues, the risk sensitivities. And I think it just brings kind of a much more to the forefront, the need for risk mapping, the refocus on business continuity planning. And I think that certainly is, um, is, is a learning for all businesses. And I think that in terms of protecting yourself against future litigation, you know, looking at our own experience in terms of how we run our business is really to spend much more time on these elements to, to kind of assess the, the, the sensitivity of your business to these different uh, macroeconomic factors. Thanks. And Yoel, as, as a DNO underwriter, how are you looking at these issues from, from the perspective of, the, of, a, of an underwriter? I mean, it's a really hard question, Owen, quite frankly. <laughs> Only, I mean, what we've seen historically hasn't necessarily followed that when you see these big swings and changes in macroeconomic factors and geopolitical factors, they haven't always led to the big spikes in litigation that you'd assume would, would follow. So like the big changes we've seen in, in, in I mean, the years between 17 and, and 20 in terms of filings in federal courts for security filings, they, they were during relatively bullish conditions. Um, and, you know, you'd see the filings double almost. Dismissal rates also increased. And certainly during the GFC, uh, global financial crisis in 08, 09, you, you didn't necessarily see this massive spike. You'd see an increase in cases. You'd see, as Kevin said, the most egregious flaws where companies fail to disclose their, uh, their risks adequately, they would lead to to some you know, mega settlements, perhaps. But you'd also see the dismissal rates increase in, in line with the increase in, in frequency. So it doesn't always follow that these big changes in geopolitical um, environments lead to increased litigation. They can also lead to poor cases. It's just really hard to pin wrongful acts on directors where the entire world's gone to pot, where the whole indices just gone down. It's hard to show that Sienta, which is required, that fraud on the market to show a fraud uh, on, a, on a 10B5 claim under 34 Act. Mm -hmm. so, so because of that, 
from an underwriting position, you're kind of you're trying to engage with clients and understand what their disclosures look like, whether they're adequate, how they're going about drafting those. Are they boilerplates or are they really looking at what keeps them up at night? And are they robust enough to be able to dissuade plaintiff bar from bringing those claims in the first instance or certainly defensible in federal court? And it's those periods in between, actually, the volatility in between those periods where I think you start to find that those cases stick and the motion to dismiss fails and you end up in mediated settlement far more regularly. If, if I'm honest, I think the biggest thing is to really keep limits low to, min- to mitigate volatility of loss because when something does stick and the, set and, and the disclosures haven't been adequate, those are when you get some really big settlements coming out and you want in those cases not to be reserving massive limits in my, in my opinion. Okay, thank you. We're going to move on to topic two, which is ESG. A very a hot topic. Everyone's talking about it. We've talked about it on this podcast. And we all know what it means, right? <laughs> or do we? Kevin, you've written some, some articles recently on ESG, but I was really interested to, to read these because the focus was more around the challenges we encounter with ESG. So what does, it, what does ESG mean to you, Kevin? And secondly, what are, what are the problems with ESG? You know, I can answer that question and tell you what ESG means to me, but I think that's fundamentally the problem, that if I yeah. answer that question and tell you what it means to me, that won't necessarily match what ESG means to, on Wall Street, what ESG means to institutional investors what ESG means to DNO insurance underwriters. Um, fundamentally, ESG is a broad term that encompasses many different kinds of things, many of which are unrelated to the others. And even if you break it down into the three pillars, E, S, and G, they still are, are very encompassing. And just to illustrate that point, if you focus on the S factor, the social factor, in the United States, when people use the expression ESG, they're usually talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. But does it include uh, conflicts minerals? Does it include child labor laws? Does it uh, include human trafficking? Um, Does it include Me Too? It may or may not, and different people may disagree. Um, I I may have my views. So if I answer your question, what ESG means to me, all I'll be doing is highlighting that it may mean something else to others. That is one of the problems with ESG conceptually, is that there's no consensus on what it means. Another, and this is a challenge for the Dino insurance industry, is the question whether it's quantifiable. And part of the reason I believe it, it is not quantifiable, despite claims by certain financially incentivized uh, participants in the financial market to, to argue that it is uh, quantifiable. But the reason it's there are limitations on the quantifiability is the, the lack of definition. And you can see that if you look at different ESG ratings from different rating firms on the same company, you'll see that they, they vary widely. And the same company might that might be rated highly by one ESG rating tool might be rated much more lowly by another rating tool. So, I mean, that that's part of the problem with the, the dialogue around ESG is the lack of consensus of what it means. And that lack of definitional clarity, I think, has contributed to some some sloppy thinking um, and some premises that you know aren't necessarily validated by evidence, but that people are acting on um, in the absence of, of evidence. So I, I think it's an area that where there's a significant lack of intellectual clarity, and I think that means that the debate on issues is not always productive. Whilst we all have different views on possibly what it means and, and the issues that gives rise to, could you walk us through some examples of ESG and inverted commas related litigation that, that you've seen? Yeah, I would say sort of the prototypical ESG lawsuit is a case that's now several years old 
that was filed against ExxonMobil. Um, and the allegation was that the company had not properly uh, valued its hydrocarbon assets on its balance sheet, that internally the company recognized that because of the changing regulatory environment and the changing energy use patterns, that many of the hydrocarbon assets, the value of those assets will not be realized. And in fact, many of ExxonMobil's competitors had reduced the carrying value of many of their assets on their balance sheet, but ExxonMobil did not. And the allegation in the lawsuit was that, in fact, internally, ExxonMobil realized that it would not be able to realize the full value and was internally writing down the value of those assets, but not doing it for their external financial releases to investors. Um, And the reason I say that's sort of a prototypical case is that, first of all, it's climate change related because the climate change is uh, changing the environment uh, for the um, gas and oil companies. And, and the second is it has to do with the impacts of climate change, that, that the, the environment is changing and that creates litigation risk because of the alterations that climate change is bringing about. I emphasize that that's sort of the prototypical case and the, one, the kind of case that people are thinking about when they're thinking about what ESG litigation risk might be. Um, and I think that's the kind of case that many DNO insurance underwriters are thinking about when they're thinking about what that litigation risk consists of. But if you look at the other ESG-related cases that have been filed, they're of a different kind and character, and they're really not captured within that premise about what the litigation risk is. And some of the examples are relatively recently filed securities class action lawsuits in the United States, one against Unilever, the conglomerate based in the UK, that owns uh, Ben & Jerry's, the ice cream brand. And I think many listeners may recall that Ben & Jerry's, when it was an independent company, was sort of wrapped up in its brand was the idea that it was a socially conscious company and that it was socially active. And um, when uh, Unilever acquired Ben & Jerry's, part of the contractual undertaking was that Ben & Jerry's would be able to maintain an independent board with an eye of maintaining that social activism. Um, And what happened recently is that that independent board took steps so that Ben & Jerry's ice cream products were not being sold in Israel because of what the um, independent board felt was uh, policies of Israel with respect to what the board called Palestinian-occupied territory. This is a very high-profile international diplomacy issue that embroiled Unilever in adverse publicity. The prime minister of Israel made comments critical of the company. The company found itself in the financial pages and its share price declined and a securities class action lawsuit came in. I, I use that case as an illustration for a number of things. Number one, Uh, It's an illustration of how the breadth of the S and ESG, because here you have a company being socially active, and yet that that activity resulted in in, um, litigation. And it's, it's one of a number of cases that illustrates the point that it is not the ESG laggards that might draw ESG litigation. It may be the ESG active companies that wind up uh, getting involved in litigation because of reputational issues, of execution error, because of controversies surrounding the positions they've been taken. And I emphasize that last point about the controversies because there have been some very recent developments in here in the United States um, that I've heard described as ESG backlash, where conservative attorneys general and conservative governors in a variety of states have taken actions against 
companies that are ESG active. And um, there was a survey put out by a U.S. law firm just in the last few days that 17 U.S. states have either adopted or proposed legislation that bars the company from doing business with companies that are boycotting industries or companies based on ESG positions and uh, prohibiting the state pension funds from taking investment positions based on ESG principles. The backlash, so to speak, represented by that legislation has also been accompanied by litigation. Just in the last few days, a conservative think tank that also happens to be a stockholder of Starbucks filed a lawsuit in state court in the state of Washington, alleging that the uh, directors and officers of Starbucks violated their fiduciary duties by adopting proactive diversity, equity, and inclusion practices that the plaintiff claims violate civil rights laws of the U.S. and of the states in which Starbucks does business. So my, my point here is getting all the way backward, you know, the prototypical case and the assumption that where the risk of ESG is coming from is for companies that are not uh, proactive on ESG, the, the, the ESG laggards are the ones that are going to attract litigation. And that may be so, but I, I, I hope I've made clear that the, the litigation risk involved here is much more complex and multifaceted than that prototypical assumption. And I think for anyone thinking about what ESG risk consists of, uh, you not only have to think about the risk of the company that's an ESG laggard, but you have to think of the risk also that a company is ESG proactive Will there be um, risk to that company from execution error or reputational risk? And then finally, what is the risk of the ESG backlash? Um, unfortunately, I don't think that's going to go away. The, you know, the divided politics in the United States has, has many, many attributes. And uh, one is that the divisive nature of, of pretty much any issue gets politicized and it becomes a sort of a, a battle line in, in the, the political wars of division. So, you know, the, getting all the way back to your question about, you know, what the litigation risk looks like, um, just as, as I think ESG, the term itself, is broader than people typically conceive when they're using it. I think the ESG risk, litigation risk, is broader than I think people typically conceive and it has very significant implications for not only the, the risk profile of many publicly traded companies, but I think it has implications for how the DNO industry is, is going to respond to ESG as a, as a concept and a risk. And here, I think there's a lot of presumption that if companies are good on ESG, they're a better DNO risk. And I think in the sense it's typically meant that may be true, but there are these other factors that I need think need to be taken into account. And the actual uh, litigation risk may be much more complicated than is typically assumed. Yeah, and gives rise to so many difficulties for, for corporations. Again, I think, how are you balancing that state statute regulatory pressure with um, the social pressures to be to be um, proactive on ESG? That's that's right, Owen. There was a, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but there was a um, law firm memo uh, put out just in the last few days that crossed my desk and that the title of was Damned If You Do and Damned If You Don't, mm -hmm. that you're under pressure from um, activist investors to show ESG progress. But at the same time, you may be risking uh, stepping into a political firestorm if you wind up touching a, a controversial issue or topic that attracts political attention. Then it comes back to you're, you're damned if you do, but 
you're not so damned if you have an intelligent uh, strategic plan in place regarding how you communicate to your shareholders, stakeholders about it. But I'm just going to bring in Philippe now. And Philippe, could you could you share your views on some of the problems Kevin's identified there with the SG? What are the, what are the challenges in your view? Uh, Kevin, of course, really clearly articulated the issue there. You know, I think this lack of uh, consistency and clarity of what uh, ESG is means that um, the abundance of index, indices, ratings, uh, assessments, etc., makes it very difficult to, to navigate and to find in any of them, I mean, a clear correlation with what we as underwriters are interested in is the DNO exposure, right? I mean, so how do you take that index and kind of like translate that to uh, a, a kind of like a DNO risk uh, risk assessment. So I think there's a, a, um, a real risk of oversimplifying underwriting, unfortunately, in, in uh, over-reliance on, on these um, various uh, index. And yet, I think when you look at the uh, ESG trend, you know, to, to summarize that as kind of ESG trend, uh, I agree with you, Owen. You know, this is actually creating an, uh, effectively an increased exposure. I mean, the more companies are required to disclose and to make a commitment, the reality is that uh, the more likely they are to actually get it wrong. I mean, inadvertently uh, or not. And by such, um, it's, it is creating, I think, a, a heightened risk of, uh, of litigation, despite all the good intentions. And I was wondering on that point, I was wondering, does, does all that reporting, you know, and we've, we've talked about this and we've seen it across the globe the, the, in terms of financial um, disclosure requirements, all the time it takes reporting regulatory compliance with these issues, I wonder if that takes up so much time that it actually it prevents corporations having time to actually sit down and have kind of a deeper discussion about sustainability um, strategy and stuff like that. So thanks, Philippe. Yoel, again, you're going to tell me it's really difficult, aren't you? But rather than call it backlash, I think I might call it splashback. It's really hard to know which way to go on the basis, as Kevin said, that you've got litigation on those that are laggards, perhaps. Well, that's not what we've seen, actually. What we've seen is those that have been in the forefront of it and perhaps seen as virtue signaling or greenwashing. Those have got right out in front of seeing the litigation. So rather than talk about what underwriters should be doing, all I can really say is what I wouldn't do is go chasing after companies that proclaim ESG credentials because that's where the claims are right now. I think overall, what we're going to see is probably just an easier, a lower bar to entry with respect to the plaintiff firms coming in with complaints because there, there are so many more things that can be complained about. We, you know, previously, we talked about event-driven litigation. Now we have this whole smorgasbord of completely different concepts under one banner, which used to be called CSR, is now ESG. I just think the bar is lower to bring litigation. doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be against those that are laggards on regulation or in showing credentials. We're not seeing necessarily litigation against offshore drillers. We're seeing litigation against ice cream makers where they're trying to, what they think, do the right thing. So what I wouldn't be doing is going going chasing those and writing those companies necessarily who proclaim to be to be on the on the front foot on this stuff. I don't think that's the right approach. Just coming back to, to Kevin, I, I wanted to ask you a lot of it a lot of the risk does come back to company disclosures around these issues. Are clients talking to you about that? And you know, what other types of conversations are you having with clients around the challenges of ESG? There, there is a lot of conversation about the disclosures. Most of the conversation centers around climate change disclosures. You're well aware, I'm sure, that there are currently pending proposed climate change disclosure guidelines before the SEC. If 
the guidelines are implemented in anything close to the proposed form, they will impose significant costs on companies because there's a portion of the guidelines that have very specific requirements surrounding greenhouse gas emissions disclosures. And um, it would be quite burdensome for companies to assemble information to fulfill those reporting requirements. So there's Mm -hmm. a lot of discussion around what from a investment standpoint, companies should be required to disclose. And the proposed guidelines are quite controversial, in part because they could impose very significant costs on reporting companies. But it is an important part of the overall discussion about how companies should be addressing ESG disclosures in in their um, SEC filings. And even if the guidelines are not passed or passed in a very different form, companies are going to have to grapple with disclosures, both in terms of their risk factors and in terms of um, the impact on their future business prospects. So I think it's an issue that's not going to go away. I think it's an issue that's going to probably become more complex with the passage of time. If we do continue to have global events that are are as a result of of climate change, uh, like the drought and heat in China this summer and the monsoon rains in Pakistan that are happening right now, you know, it's going to have a significant impact on companies. And the companies are going to have the burden of trying to report about how these events could affect their business operations and their financial results. So it, it's, a, it's a big, difficult topic that I think company executives that are responsible for the company's disclosures are wrestling with and I think are going to continue to wrestle with, depending on what happens with, for example, the proposed climate change disclosure guidelines. It, it, this could be a very significant factor on companies' public disclosures um, and a significant challenge for reporting companies as they try and fulfill their obligations under the guidelines. Yeah, and how do you, th- I was just wondering as well, how do you square those, the SEC, in whatever form they end up being in, SEC rules, how do you square that with all that state state law coming in, which is, well, the anti-ESG backlash, so such a complex environment. So that kind of, that, that brings us on to the final topic, which was um, the state of the DNA market. And Kevin, could you walk us through the landscape in the US right now? What's going on? How do we get there? What, what do you think it looks like for the next six to 12 months with your crystal ball? Well, the market in the US, like the insurance market globally, is, is cyclical um, and driven by supply and demand. We're coming out of a period uh, of a harder market. We went from as early as the end of 2018 to, I would say, the end of 2021, where we were in a so-called hard market, meaning that buyers paid higher, in some cases, much higher costs for their insurance than they had been paying in the immediately preceding period. Um, and so for two and maybe three renewals, buyers were seeing their total DNO insurance costs going up. We're now in a transition phase. Um, I think what's happened is a lot of the new capacity that was attracted into the market by the higher pricing environment is now starting to have an impact. Uh, competition has definitely returned. Um, it was first evident in high attachment excess, but now it seems to be true throughout the insurance tower that um, it's an improving pricing environment for insurance buyers. And so many buyers in this current renewal cycle may see their total DNO insurance costs decline for the first time in years, Um, not to the levels that were in effect immediately prior to the start of the hard market, but 
at least relative to um, what they were seeing on their most recent renewals. One difficulty in the environment for insurers, as for all other participants in the um, economy, is uh, the amount of economic uncertainty from those very factors we were discussing earlier. And in particular, will the accumulation of those factors push the economy into a recession? So that possibility and the unpredictability, I think, makes the DNO insurers in the U.S. Uh, very watchful. Um, and I don't think there's a lot of bullish optimism. I think there's wariness. Mm-hmm. And uh, the competition that is uh, affecting the pricing environment is really the result of the um, capacity that came into the marketplace rather than a perception that the overall risk environment has improved. Mm-hmm. You know, you asked me to say what I thought is, is going to happen for the next six months. And I think I will say that I believe that the... Um, Transition will continue um, and transition toward a different phase of the insurance cycle um, to the benefit, I think, of buyers. But I, I'd like to just hedge a little bit on that prediction because I think the real factor is what, what will happen to the economy. And if we do slip into recession, how will that affect the rating environment and the pricing environment? Mm-hmm. And it could have um, a disruptive impact and in, in interrupt the smooth transitioning mm-hmm. to the next phase of the cycle. But I, I, you know, if you put a gun to my head and say, okay, no, you have to choose, I think I'd say that the, the transition we're experiencing now will continue at least mm-hmm. for the next six months. And Joel, how does that compare to London? What's going on with the London DNA market right now? <laughs> yeah, it's much the same, but it's kind of accelerated. I think there's a, there's a big pricing differential for US security exposed risk in, in London compared to the domestic US market, I think for practically a decade. And, and that was prior to maybe 1718, where, where the London market really hardened very fast. And until recently, actually, I think the London market's probably been rated higher in terms of premiums charged for US risk. But I think that's now, it, it's now probably at equilibrium. I would suggest right now, in the last few months, you'd probably find that the prices are practically the same. That, that's due in most part to, in some parts, new entrants coming in. I mean, for the most part, those new entrants have been really careful with respect to the line size deployment and pricing-wise. Without the legacy of claim, they've also been really careful to to use a methodology which is based on the exposures. And you know, you've also got legacy carriers who have been emboldened. They've seen the returns. They're increasing line sizes. Some of those that have been traditionally higher players on, on, on placements are now coming down and showing enthusiasm way down on towers. So I think that's contributed. And then also there's a bit of venue shopping between the US market and London market. That's caused some concern on the broker side. That's been driving some more competitive behavior on, on programs. But right now, I think there's, for once, I've, I've seen a you know, relative equilibrium in pricing between the US market and the market for US risk. Great. Now, just a follow up to that one um, for Kevin. I mean, what's the client sentiment now around the DNA market? Is it what is it? Anger, disillusionment, um, hope, <laughs> happiness? During the height of the high, hard market, there 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 was anger and resentment, and there was a lot of pushback. And you know, the, the, there was a belief that the, there was um, opportunistic behavior going on. It's hard to explain the insurance market to to many buyers because the cycle doesn't necessarily seem to correlate with the client's perception of of the risk, and you know they they can become cynical because they feel that the the price is fluctuating year to year, but the company's risk profile hasn't altered, and that that makes them feel that they're not being treated fairly and skeptical and wary of the insurance market. Some, some buyers understand the nature of the cycle and its impact on the price that they're going to pay, but a, a lot of buyers um, 
have a jaundiced view of the insurance industry and um, I think take a cynical perspective. You know, it's one of the challenges we've had to deal with during the hard market was explaining why their pricing was going so up. And those were some very uncomfortable conversations. You know, it's, it's now a more favorable environment for buyers. Um, and obviously that's more welcome news, but it, it still does uh, make it more jaundiced. It reinforces some of their views about the insurance industry. A really good conversation there and a big thank you to Kevin for giving us his time and insights. Owen, we're targeting an October launch for the third full series of the Rising Edge DNO podcast. Just briefly, what are some of the topics we've got lined up for the end of the year? Yeah, it's a great discussion. And um, yeah, we're super grateful for Kevin um, agreeing to come on. So series three, we, we are in the process now. Uh, we're covering off this is my personal favourite, so I'm I'm nerdy about this. But um, we're covering off DNO wordings, so we're having a, a kind of technical discussion about wordings with a DNO wordings expert. Secondly, we're going to be looking at um, discussing the link between corporate governance, which is obviously important within the context of DNO insurance and value creation, so success of the business with a corporate governance expert. I'm going to keep it keep it a secret for now, um, and then we're going to finish with two podcasts on areas that are more linked to DNO, the sort of ancillary, if you like, um, still very much boardroom issues. And those topics are risk mitigation for employment practices liability, and then crime. So how to mitigate risk of your company falling victim to um, employee or, or third party fraud. Fantastic. And also, I think it's important to mention, Owen, that we are keen to hear from listeners if they have any ideas or suggestions of topics we should be covering in the future. Yeah, um, we have listeners all over the all over the world, and, and we would really like to hear from you. So, if you have any feedback on the podcast, if there's any topics you would like us to cover, or if you just want to say hello, please contact us. Um, and you can contact me at owen.daisy at risingedge.co, or you can you can use the team address as team at risingedge.co. We'd love to hear from you and start a discussion. Absolutely. And of course, you can always contact Owen or myself on LinkedIn as well. We're both pretty active and present there. So do drop us a message there if that's easier. And we'll put both those email addresses in the episode show notes as well. So in the meantime, Owen, until episode one of season three, take care. Take care, Richard. Thanks. See you soon.